0: This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Helen is off today, so it's just going to be me and Nina, and we're doing Eco Village. I'll kick us off. Eco Village is a new film set to release on the 3rd of March, 2023. It's written and directed by Phoebe Near. It stars Sydney Flanagan as Robin, a young woman who hitchhikes to reach an eco village she's read about online. When Robin joins the village, it includes four permanent members. There's Jake, a muscular alcoholic who does a lot of the hard labor. There's Jean, a pensive guy who does a lot of the gardening. The show is run by Ursula. She's still recovering from a bout of Lyme disease, so she's rarely in position to do anything apart from give orders. Then there's Sammy, Ursula's life partner. We don't see her do much apart from complain whenever Ursula sleeps with anyone else. Yes, there's a lot of sleeping around in this film. Robin quickly falls for Jake. Jean tries to warn her that Jake is bad news, but Robin makes it her mission to compel Jake to have sex with her. Jake only entertains the idea when he's drunk, but Robin becomes convinced that they are in love. Her fantasy is dashed when Jean tells her that Jake regularly sleeps with Ursula. The love rhombus is not very stable. The house becomes full of resentment, At one point, Robin tries to team up with Sammy on the grounds that they both have reasons to resent the Jake and Ursula tandem, but Sammy rebuffs Robin, accusing her of only pretending to be kind. Realizing that Sammy isn't going to be her friend, Robin spills her guts to Ursula, getting Sammy in deep trouble with the head of house. Now Sammy resents Robin for talking out of class. Jean thinks Jake is a jerk, and both Sammy and Robin are upset with Jake for sleeping with Ursula. Eventually, there's a physical fight involving all four of them. Ursula discovers it and orders them to stop. She then has them prepare a feast, laced with heavy drugs, and pushes them to have what appears to be an orgy. The drug-fueled orgy is interrupted when they see Casey, an outsider who has been stealing things from the village. Casey was told to go away, but she's been skulking about the campsite, looking for drugs. The place is full to bursting with them. Fed up with Casey's behavior, Sammy runs over to her and stabs her in the abdomen. Ursula commands Jake to assist. They kill the thief. When it's done, Ursula expresses disgust with them for having done this. Jake loses his marbles, becoming explicitly dangerous to Robin. She is forced to flee the man she thought she loved. As Robin flees, a helicopter arrives. Robin's rich parents have come to rescue her. The nuclear family literally descends upon the eco-village. As soon as she sees the helicopter, Robin turns back to Jake and runs to him. As frightening as Jake is, she would rather be destroyed by him than loved by her parents. But the parents aren't screwing around. A private security officer hops out of the chopper and shoots Jake square in the chest. He carries Robin back to the helicopter. She screams and kicks to no avail. We learn that while Robin pretends to be destitute, she in fact lives in a giant mansion with parents who constantly buy her expensive things. They treat her like a child, and when she's with her parents, it seems very clear that she is not a real adult. They use their raid on the eco-village as an anecdote at parties. The film ends with a screenshot of a review posted on a website called Woof USA. Apparently, Woof links eco-tourists with organic farms. These ecotourists volunteer to live and work on the organic farms as a way of connecting with the land. According to the Woof charter, these volunteers are in no case meant to replace employees. The farmer and the volunteer are meant to agree to a schedule before the volunteer arrives. But these rules are easy to bend, and so Woof encourages both the farmer and the volunteer to post reviews of one another. I'm not particularly worried about the volunteers feeling exploited. A farmer who regularly upsets volunteers won't maintain a high enough review score to operate for long. The real concern with this kind of thing is that farmers will find ways to induce the volunteers to enjoy their exploitation. If you can exploit volunteers and get those volunteers to leave positive reviews, you can obtain a lot of free labor through this kind of service. Many ecotourists are motivated by a sense of guilt about their relationship with the environment, and this sense of guilt can be used to induce them to enjoy toil as a form of penance. The farmer becomes the dom, and the volunteer becomes the sub in a kind of green BDSM, where agricultural hard labor takes the place of violent sex. Today we are often told that we shouldn't question consensual BDSM in the sexual context. But what about consensual slave labor? The fact of exploitation seems to matter, even in cases where the person being exploited consents to the exploitation. The farmers are making money off the guilt these ecotourists feel. Green political messaging often promotes feelings of guilt. If a person is induced to feel guilt, and this guilt is then used to extract unpaid labor from that person, hasn't something gone profoundly wrong? Often the circumstances that manufacture our consent are deeply troubling. The impulse today to suggest that consent alone is all that is necessary for an act to be acceptable treats individual decisions as if they were context-independent. It relies on a liberal individualist ontology in which individuals make free decisions and context is just something irresponsible people use to excuse their mistakes. But in point of fact, people often consent to labor relationships that are exploitative. Their consent in no way diminishes or excuses the fact of exploitation. The fixation on consent masks forms of exploitation that have been naturalized, that have been taken for granted or rendered invisible. We see this a lot with cooperatives and independent contractors. Advocates of these forms of labor relations will argue that worker-owners are happier being their own bosses. That may well be true, but it is often possible to identify clear senses in which these worker-owners are subject to exploitation. The fact that this exploitation has been made invisible does not make it excusable. It merely makes it more difficult to resist through political action. Let's hear what Nina thinks.
1: Yeah, very nice. So um, I, I I can't remember how I came across Phoebe Neer. She's, she's seems like a very interesting woman. She's also involved in this, I don't know if you would call it a campaign, but a sort of project to discuss whether Shakespeare was in fact Edward de Vere, um, who is the, some maybe 11th or 13th, Uh, Duke of Oxford or something like this. Anyway, this is a long raging debate within Shakespeare studies about whether Shakespeare was in fact a nobleman rather than a kind of lower middle class or even working class man uh, from Stratford who left his second best bed to his wife and all of the few things that we know about Shakespeare. And and, uh, so they're I'll I'll put it in the, the link when we put this this episode up along with a link to Phoebe Neer's website. Um so I I'm not it's 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 this sort of Oxfordian controversy, but she she helped put together a PDF uh with essays by also by uh Catherine D. um and Curtis Yarvin discussing this issue. I, I, I must confess I'm not sure what the what the whole Edward De Vere thing is about, but they had a recent uh, party or event in uh, New York, I guess, about this, and I I don't know if it's partly to do with the kind of class issue. Like, is is the idea that Shakespeare couldn't possibly have been? of of this particular class like he must have been a nobleman because Shakespeare obviously refers to lots of different languages and lots of historical events I'm not I'm not sure maybe it ties into some sort of strange discussion that's going on about politics and class and culture uh questions of the canon anyway I'll leave this as a as an open question as it is for for me uh, in any case so I um I had been in touch with Phoebe near, uh, briefly, and she sent me a link to her film and I thought, okay, why not? Let's, let's watch it. Um, yeah, so this is, so this is eco village. It's, I, I watched an early version and then I rewatched the latest cut. So as Benjamin says, it's coming out in March. We'll put the link. I think it's uh, in San Francisco. They're having some launch. Uh, we'll put the link, uh, in the thing. Um, I, there's something about this aesthetic, which is kind of, uh, I would describe as kind of twee. Uh, it has also a kind of slightly A24 sort of um, effect uh, than the people who sort of make Midsommar and every film now seems to need to have some kind of hallucinatory drug scene where people uh, kind of go crazy and, and have an orgy or kill somebody or both. Uh, so this is this is a thing that, that is uh, now a trope of contemporary cinema. Uh, I think Midsommar does it quite well, but uh, it's also kind of cliched. Uh, at some point, I think I, I read this film as a, as it's partly it, it's obviously partly about class. It's partly about these uh, the promise of uh, uh, extra Oedipal arrangements. So the idea of the, the commune or these alternative ways of living um but ultimately the po- the point is of course that the rich person uh while seemingly being exploited by by the the, the people on the commune is in fact ultimately uh uh it, well exploiting them in so far as she doesn't reveal her background um but also in the sense that uh when push comes to shove uh, uh, the elites will will simply murder or eliminate anyone who is <laughs> is in their way. Uh, uh, and so I think the message of the film, in that sense, is quite clear. But from an aesthetic point of view, um, it's i I felt like it was a film that was playing with, toying with the idea of twee and tweeness, which is a affect or a um, an aesthetic that we have seen quite a lot in millennial cinema. I, I remember uh, noticing this actually, maybe as a precursor in the genre of cinema, which was uh, mumblecore. I don't know if you've come across mumblecore. There are a few films in this genre. I seem to remember going to the cinema with my friend Daniel years ago, probably 18 years ago now or something like this, to see a film called funny peculiar or funny ha or something like this. And this was a mumblecore film. Okay. So mumblecore was this aesthetic where it was young people sort of in their late teens, early twenties who would uh, engage in sort of really annoying, half-hearted conversations because everyone was really insecure and they couldn't really speak properly. And, uh, you know, everyone was sort of fucked up, but not in a particularly extreme way. They were just a bit sort of, um, you know, didn't know what they were doing. Um, you know, which is, you, you get in Gen X films, you have this idea in Slackers and Reality Bites, and we've discussed some of these films on the show. But but I found, probably because I was too old for the genre, I found Mumble Call very annoying. Um, I also find uh, millennial shows uh, such as Girls, although Girls, perhaps, maybe I should return to Girls, but, uh, and, and maybe in a way Girls is a kind of maybe apex millennial production in some ways but i i need to think about that question um is yeah is is a certain kind of uh relation to one's own generation as a sort of open question i suppose and uh perhaps the question of of whininess and complaints and you know which features in this film they're kind of the the song that she sings is about sort of waking up every day and not being very good and um failing and then sort of repeating but not in any overly dramatic way although the film is also quite you know involves obviously violence and and sex and 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 so on um but i thought that perhaps the film was a, a kind of a comment on tweeness as an aesthetic right so this is this is how i read the film that that phoebe nehr is tapping into this particular kind of aesthetic which has come to dominate or is a, a trope or a feature of millennial cultural production um and in a way performing a kind of ideological critique on tweeness precisely as it relates to class which is to say just as the main character in this film, Robin um, pretends to a certain kind of meekness and it's actually Sammy uh, calls her out on it at one point which I think is the sort of key line of the film where Sammy says to Robin I'm on to you nobody is behaves like you nobody is this meek and mild right there must be something going on right So, so Sammy has an inkling that Robin is not quite exactly who she presents herself to be which is this sort of you know shy anxious but but actually quite sneaky uh, character and 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 we we only find out how sneaky uh, uh, at the end um, so i think what's going on in this film is partly using the aesthetics of tweeness in order to critique the ideological function of tweeness as a way of disguising the violent reality of class relations okay so that so that's my my reading of the film and i think the Robin's fantasy of what the commune will give her, right? This idea of freedom, experience, you know. But she's really milking these these people who probably, to be honest, don't have... Anywhere else to go? Like right? these are people who maybe are dispossessed. They certainly, um, uh, you know, obviously the the main dominatrix woman had made money by kind of beating up rich people, and then she invested it in the farm. But you get the feeling, especially with the uh, the girl who joins later on, that these are people who really are quite uh, um, isolated or, or on the outside of society. Like they don't don't have anywhere else to be. They don't have any other jobs. They don't certainly don't have a private income income. And one of the other major features of Robin's self-presentation is the fact that she lies repeatedly about a tragic backstory, right? And this is something that sociopaths do a lot, that they one of the best ways of manipulating people is to get them to feel sorry for you. Okay, this is a well-established tactic that people who are very socially manipulative often engage in because most people are well-meaning. And if you say to somebody, oh, I've had this terrible upbringing, my childhood was very sad, you know, I've just lost somebody close to me, people will, uh, out of the kindness, which they genuinely feel, feel sorry, or pity for that person, right? So they're they're immediately um, off their guard, if you like. And Robin engages in this tactic in a variety of ways and and it's clear at the end as her parents say to her what did you tell them this time you know did you say that you've been abused by your gym teacher did you say you know so it's clear and, and even there's a scene where robin gets a hot dog at the end and she pretends again that her mother has just died and so she even though she has lots of money she gets the hot dog for free it's this it's this level of sort of petty manipulation that really characterizes this um this woman and so i suppose again it's a kind of Really a film about class and this sort of uh, maybe the the danger of tweeness, you know, the danger of of a certain kind of indie aesthetic or a sort of appearance that that looks harmless and looks self-doubting and self-critical and a bit mumbly. But it's in fact deeply, deeply evil and reproduces all of the the violence and iniquity um, of society as a whole.
0: That's a really interesting point about Tweenus. I had not thought about <laughs> it as a commentary on Tweenus And that that's very striking. I think you're right about that. Uh, yeah. A little bit of a kind of what's going on with all that Wes Anderson stuff. I think a lot of millennials have adopted a kind of Wes Anderson aesthetic as a way of presenting themselves as one of the good guys.
1: Right? How could I forget about Wes Anderson? <laughs> He's so obviously who I'm talking about in a way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, Wes and, and
0: you look at the fashion of millennials; it is this kind of twee Wes Anderson character mm-hmm. look that a lot of people are going for.
1: Um, no, completely. And I think, you know, you see that in the sort of norm core. She, she wears sort of very banal T-shirts and she's got sort of a little, a little shark tattoo and this kind of stick and poke kind of look. And, you know, she doesn't sort of do much with her, her sort of appearance, but it's, you know, kind of dressed down. And, um, yeah, I I but West, I mean, where's Anderson films are kind of interesting, aren't they? Because they... I mean, they're actually very well done. I mean, they're extremely beautiful films in a way, but but absolutely, they they tap into this kind of middle brow, uh, yes, sort of mid mid range emotional <laughs> feel. That,
0: and that that's the gap between millennial twee and the outright you know zoomer in the sweatpants. You know, millennial twee has this a little bit dressed up quality to it, you know, the flannels and and so on. Whereas the zoomer the zoomer look is is abandons any attempt at any kind of of aesthetic apart from comfort
1: so so who characterizes the zoomer look do you think or where, oh, where do you Yeah, you
0: know, I, I could describe aspects mm. of the zoomer look i i don't know if i am wired into zoomer celebrities enough to <laughs> point out people you know and especially people you would have heard of true uh, but <laughs> it often involves socks with cracks and sweatpants and uh, sweatshirts, uh, sweatsuits, the matching sweatsuits from the 90s are, are mm-hmm. back in fashion. Champ sports, champ sports, uh, athleisure, just wearing athletic stuff as as ordinary day-to-day outfits. That's very, I think, Zoomer. You start—you saw the beginning of that with millennials wearing the uh, yoga pants, but mm. the, the Zoomers have gone off the yoga pants into the sweatpants. So, you know, the yoga pants are meant to be tight-fitting and they're meant to, you know, have some kind of, of positive aesthetic effect apart from being yoga pants. The sweatpants are just <laughs> this is comfortable.
1: I, I got to say, given the choice, walking around the street, I, I I strongly prudishly object to women wearing yoga pants with, with nothing. On top of them I, I think this is an obscene sartorial gesture
0: <laughs> well you know that would be the the classic gen x view of that move of course the next step <laughs> is to go to the sweatpants you'll also see your know, millennials we started doing the young young female millennials uh women started doing the destructed jeans you know mm-hmm. the tight-fitting skinny jeans with the destruction the zoomers will do destructed jeans but they're uh, ill-fitting and uh poofy and uh, shapeless and boxy. I
1: yeah, so. I think the character, I don't know if you saw The White Lotus season 2. Uh very interesting show. I mean, extremely kind of gay, very arch, very uh you know, it's one of these shows about very the very rich and, and the sort of mendacity and horror of what the elites if you like uh, it's a very, you know, strong theme uh in lots of contemporary culture. But they they have a Zuma character who's like the assistant and she's sort of a bit depressed. She's on like medication. She doesn't sort of know what she's doing and her outfits are absolutely extraordinarily awful. Like they're kind of really ill-fitting, ill-matched, but sort of really funny. Like she's sort of, I don't know, it's it's a very knowing show. Like it kind of mocks absolutely everyone of any generation or age or or wealth or whatever sexuality it's, it's a very, um, <laughs> yeah, free, free range, uh, critique type show. But, um, I, yeah, I got the strong impression that the young woman as he was the assistant was, a was supposed to, um, embody the Zuma, uh, persona, like just, just sort of, yeah, not, not even that kind of millennial competition, just, just sort of like, bumbling along and, you know, just wearing whatever she finds under her bed sort of look.
0: Yeah, it's uh, the millennial man looks like a lumberjack. The millennial zoomer looks like he lives at the gym, but wears Crocs instead of athletic shoes that would actually enable him to do, you know, to run or to do some form of exercise.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess the lockdown sort of enabled that look to really, or encouraged that look, I should say.
0: Yeah. Though I started seeing it even before the lockdown, I remember visiting a college campus in say 2019 and seeing that the socks with Crocs had started to happen. So I think, <laughs> I think it predates the lockdown, but certainly the lockdown took away arguments against doing it that might otherwise have slowed it or lessened mm. its penetration. Uh, I, I also, as I was watching this, initially I had this kind of critique of the, uh, of the film on the basis that you know, the thing that seemed to be missing, it's a commune. So where's all of the theory talk about ethical non-monogamy, which <laughs> at this point if you go to a university <laughs> campus, people talk about ethical non-monogamy and polyamory. And clearly the legitimating language that Ursula needs to have these relationships and have people accept them is some kind of ethical non-monogamy argument. So I, I, I as I'm watching it, I'm going, how come nobody ever brings up any of this? Hmm. Where, you know, they, they're on a commune. They clearly like to question conventional social norms and relationships. Why aren't they having theoretical arguments with each other about how sex and romance are meant to work or how consent is meant to work. This would seem to me to be something that would pervade this kind of environment. The exposure I've had to people who have lived on, on communes, they love to think about this stuff and talk about it and argue about it. And they often have interesting opinions on a lot of these matters, you know, both for and against different kinds of arrangements. Uh, so I, I found that missing. But when I saw the thing at the end about Woof, And i looked that up i went wait a minute this isn't really a critique of communes as such i mean you can do the kind of commune versus the nuclear family thing on the basis of the helicopter scene which is what i was strongly inclined to do i was initially strongly inclined to read this as a communes versus nuclear family kind of film a film making the point that both systems include power structures that are immiserating for people in the systems who lack power Mm -hmm. right so Robin does not have a lot of power on the commune, and she doesn't have a lot of power in the nuclear family. It's very clear how she doesn't have power in the nuclear family. She's treated as a child. In the commune, there's a kind of pretension that she's one of them or that she's an equal, but in point of fact, Ursula tells everybody what to do and they do whatever she says. So the power relationship is laundered and less clear and less visible. Often, to make up for that, if you talk to people who are proponents of communal living, they really theorize about how the power relationship ought to work. And they try you know, very hard to structure it in such a way that these power dynamics that pervade the nuclear family aren't just replicated in different ways in the commune. So I, I felt that to some degree, the proponents of communal living were a little bit short shrifted by the lack of inclusion of their arguments and the kinds of things that they would say. Yeah. Uh, but because it's an eco village with, you know, woofing, Looking in those circles, I don't think that those circles are as theoretically rich as, say, red communes. I mean, this is a green commune. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a difference between a green commune and a red commune. Uh, A lot of the most interesting kind of theory of alternative living arrangements comes from the kind of... uh, red space rather than the green space
1: yeah although I though on that point I got the impression that you know by the time Robin arrives all of the sort of utopian aspects of the commune have uh, already vanished you know and it's it's sort of sunk into the everyday because I mean there is the the um, uh, the agreement that everyone has to sign, but it's completely perfunctory. And, and Robin sort of says, oh, respect each other's boundaries. And she points out that there's a typo. In the, and the other woman is like, oh, shut up. Don't be such a, you know, don't be such a bitch or whatever. Uh, you know, yeah,
0: I, I don't think that's how these tend to really go. <laughs> if anything, they're very, very fastidious about the community agreement because it's what mm-hmm. they got. It's the only guarantee of any kind of order. Uh, so. You know, my, my, in my experience of dealing uh, with and talking to people who are from these kinds of settings, they're very fastidious about the community agreement and, if anything, hyper-theoretical about it. Um, but... I mean later on then, because people show up and they exploit the arrangement yeah. and they have to guard against that and the way they guard against it is by trying to be, if anything, extremely precise about expectations I mean, with it, new it, people.
1: I do know what you mean. I mean, I know somebody who lived in a sort of communal house, even not not an actual commune, but you know, and at some point they received a sixteen-page letter outlining all of their. Um, infractions or something like this, you know, I mean, some kind of deranged level of um, pedantic, obsessive uh, monitoring. Yeah,
0: that's what characterizes <laughs> this. Yeah. So in some ways, I felt that it got the commune situation precisely wrong, but I'm willing to look past that and view it as more about specifically woofing because of the screen at the end. And then to think about it in terms of eco communes, which often just involve progressive liberals who are not very theoretical, who Mm -hmm. just have a little bit of a sense of environmental guilt. She, I think she's from, uh, she's meant to be a student at Wesleyan. So she's meant to be a college student, not a high school student. So going to a liberal arts school like Wesleyan, she would be exposed to some amount of theory, but probably not as much theory as, say, a British undergraduate student who'd be well-versed in ethical non-monogamy. So I would think... No, cuz you can't avoid it. If you go to any British university and you're an undergraduate student, at some point you'll you'll encounter that concept and you'll have a discussion about it with somebody. You would have to
1: wow, would have to come definitely up. Definitely a development. nobody talks about these things when I when I was at university.
0: Um Oh, when I was at Cambridge, there was there were events uh where they would do like speed dating events but specifically for polyamorous people. Ugh. How tiring. Yeah, it's It's very common at this point uh, at undergraduate unis. So, uh, yeah, I, I felt that it was uh, kind of surprising that there wasn't mm. some of that discussion. But I can understand, you know, it's Wesleyan and um, it's an eco community. It's not, you know, this isn't a, a, a commune in San Francisco. This is a agricultural commune. That is It's also targeting- very small.
1: I mean, it's essentially just this woman's house that she bought with money from being a dominatrix. And, you know, it's not it's not a big commune. Or, And I think yeah. um, it's, it's clear that Jake, for example, you know, later on, when Robin is told about Jake's exploits, that this has been going on for years, you know, there seems to be a kind of like... Um, you know, a tired sort of acceptance about, you know, that all of the idealism has gone out of it, you know.
0: Well, that's the other thing. So if it's been going on for years, why does Sammy get so upset about it just at this precise juncture? Mm.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why Ursula sort of gets back into Jake because presumably Jake has been there all the time. Well, so.
0: Well, Jean says that they've been doing this. So yeah. Jake has always been sleeping with Ursula. It's not a new development. Yeah. It's something that has always been going on. So it's interesting that Sammy, at this particular stage, gets really upset about it.
1: Yeah, I think maybe it's to do with the sort of proposal for the having a child or something. You know, because obviously,
0: yeah, that would be a uh, good only explanation. J-
1: only Jake can provide the child, as it were. Perhaps and a sort of limit, you know. I mean, it's just this sort of eatable point, really, isn't it? I mean, it's like if you if you're two women, you at some point you're going to need some sort of, uh, you know, male reality principle <laughs> to help you achieve your your desire to have a child. And, and uh, perhaps this is all, all too much uh, for for her. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's I I don't really know sort of. Um, how to place the critique, other than at the aesthetic level, or at least that's how I how I understood it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, 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 there are sort of a few references to culture and to books, but largely people are just sort of asleep with a book on their chest, like no one talks about ideas, like you say.
0: Yeah, nobody talks about what they're reading.
1: No, they're not really reading very much.
0: I- yeah, at, yeah. A lot of these these groups will have they'll do reading groups. They'll get together and they'll talk about something that they've read. They do make an effort, hmm. um, and so yeah, I felt that to some degree. I mean, if we were doing a red commune, it would be shortchanging the degree to which people join this stuff so that they can get theoretical with other people who like to get theoretical. Yeah, it's that's part of why they do it, so they can live alongside people who have read or are interested in reading the same things that they have read or are interested in reading. Oh,
1: oh, for sure. I mean. I mean, hell, though, would be kind of like a, you know, eight hour reading group a day. I don't know. It's sort of Charles Manson meets Marx type. I mean, you have to wonder about the cinematic depiction of communes and cults because pretty much they always end in, you know, some sort of drug fueled orgiastic violence.
0: Yeah. And and of course, there are real communes, especially Mm. in the Bay Area that run for significant periods of time. And there are people who are veterans of this who try to do it and have tried to do it in many different ways and continue to try to do it or perfect it or make it better and uh, who won't give up on or quit on these things. Yeah. And so, yeah, I thought that maybe, you know, if it was about those people or those projects that maybe had not really given them
1: No, sure. Full opportunity to give their view. I don't think it's pretending to be a kind of you know realistic depiction of commune life. Well, it's
0: it's eco-village, so Mm. it's you know that's the title. So I really, when I'm thinking about it in terms of that stuff, it's just when I think commune, I tend to think the red communes. I don't usually think about this kind of green agricultural thing. And this is a different thing. I think it really is a different kind of commune. And so I'm kind of reproaching myself for that initial critique of the film in part because I do think that there is more diversity in terms of types of communes and there are better and worse communes, just like there are better and worse families. So, yeah. Uh, it,
1: I mean, I was, I was disappointed to- when I went to Denmark. I went to Christiania or whatever it's called, Christ- Christiana. Ah, anyway, very long-running kind of, um, I don't know, like a kind of hippie uh, settlement, I guess you would say. But by the time I got there, I mean, you know, and I, I guess it's been there for like 50 years or something, right? So I think in the 60s and 70s, it was maybe much more about uh, peace and love and creativity. And But uh, when I visited maybe about uh, eight years ago, it just seemed like overrun by people selling drugs like just there were just lots of drugs and people who were drunk it was like a tourist attraction basically and you know just dealers sitting up with their tables selling drugs and it was like a bit it felt like a bit edgy not in a good way like just potentially Mm -hmm. a bit like potentially gnarly and not very nice so I was like oh okay (laughs) um but yeah, I don't know. I've never, I've never lived in any. I mean, I've, I lived as a student in shared households, which is maybe about as close as probably most people get to communal living. I don't know as an experience. Um, I generally shared with men. Uh, I tend to always live with men. Um, I, I kind of quite liked it. It was quite nice to share house. I shared, you know, one of the guys was an economist. He was very organized. He split the bills very fairly and gave us a little bill every week. (laughs) Um, that kind of thing. Uh, but I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, that's, it's kind of it. I mean, maybe I I do sometimes sort of fantasize about living in a nunnery or something like that. (laughs) Mm. But, um, interesting. <laughs> maybe, maybe there's time yet for that.
0: Yeah, that's the thing about that kind of arrangement. It's always available mm. right, to people who are not householders and don't have the kinds of obligations that prevent them from joining.
1: Yeah, no, no. And I think it's interesting that even in the, you know, whatever functionally very secular liberal age, you know, that monasteries and nunneries still exist. You know, I think this is actually a very sort of beautiful fact, actually. And, and you know, I, as far as I understand it, you, yeah, you, you sort of don't pay tax. Like you sort of renounce your ability to contribute to the outside world. But as a consequence, you don't necessarily have access to those things, other things.
0: Yeah, you know, one thing that I sometimes think about, A lot of the really hardcore defenders of the traditional family who would say that communes are just exclusively uh, a mistake. uh, A lot of them are members of faiths that have a monastic tradition. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how people who uh, think that way reconcile that. There's a lot of faiths that are very profoundly family oriented, also have very respectable monastic traditions and so clearly offer uh, you know both a family householder kind of mode of living and a monastic communal mode mm. of living
1: yeah no no exactly and I think when maybe people have bigger families like I don't know Sorab was telling me like if you have four children you're supposed to give the fourth or four sons you have to give the fourth one to the church somehow you know as a, either as a priest or a or a monk or something like that um <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, I mean, if you had, let's say, you you did have, I don't know, seven or eight children, half were male, half were female, and you couldn't marry them all off, you know, they couldn't all find a a husband or a wife. Like, I guess the church serves a function.
0: <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, or you can't afford the dowry for all of them, or, or right. something like that.
1: Yeah, or one of them's more kind of spiritually inclined, or. You know, I, 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 yeah, I
0: like how in, in that respect, a lot of, of religions are more culture war agnostic about this question of family versus commune. Uh, a lot of, you know, I think a lot of the same critiques that apply to one apply to the other, but also the, the same virtues that apply to one can be found in the other if you structure the other in such a way that those virtues can come out.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think that's right. I, I think on the techno left, you know, that there's always talking about communes and techno futurism and artificial wombs and that kind of verse. So, uh, you know, abolish the family position. I, I think it's it's sort of, well, I mean, it's just very foolhardy in the sense that I, I think that goes against what most people actually want, which is a family of their own. <laughs> and most people actually do love their own children and you know actually the idea of breaking maternal bonds in particular is really bad for human beings. Like you know, I think it actually causes a great deal of suffering and I I think you know when you hear these stories about men using surrogates to have a child and you think what happens when that child is 8 and says, you know, where's who's my mother? You know, Where's my mother? What, what are you going to say to that child? I mean, it just seems like hor- horrific, you know? You're going to say, no, well, you don't really have a mother. You, we, we rented the womb of some woman in another country. Like, okay.
0: Yeah, I think we, a lot of the time at this point, the argument is becoming what are the worst aspects of the worst kinds of communes and what are the worst aspects of the worst kinds of traditional families. Mm. And it becomes a little bit of a bash off where kind of each type is presented in the most horrific possible light. And nobody ever really makes a positive argument for what the other can do or tries to improve or construct positive versions of the other one. It becomes, well, that, that one is bad and therefore you ought to do this. Uh, but can you, been, can
1: you defend surrogacy? How would you defend it?
0: Well, I think there are probably some people who you know, couldn't otherwise have children who really want them, for whom you know, that would be the only way that that child could come into existence. Uh, and you could maybe make a, a positive argument on that basis. I think that you know, oftentimes with an actual living surrogate, Mother, There is an exploitative dynamic there insofar as that person is often put up to being a surrogate mother by uh, economic circumstances. Yeah, I think that's that's exploitative and not cool. An artificial womb removes that exploitation. And I think that's one positive thing that could be said for it.
1: I, yeah, I mean, obviously, as a kind of, I don't know, feminist Luddite, I, uh, and a, and a, somebody who's firmly on the side of tragedy and, uh, the acceptance of, uh, people not getting what they want, <laughs> I, I think that all of these things are potentially bring with them more, much more suffering, I suppose, you know, su- like suffering for the surrogate herself, you know, the idea that you can pay a woman to sort of rent her womb and you know I mean all of the feelings and that would be generated by carrying a child you know I don't think you can just eliminate them and say oh no these are irrelevant to the economic exchange I think there's you know I mean if you if you carry a child you have a you know a necessary bond with that child and also you produce breast milk and all of those things and you know, to have that child then sort of taken away, uh, I I don't know, it just seems horrific. And and the idea of an artificial womb in so far as it's possible, which I don't really believe it is, and pregnancy is extremely complex uh, process, you know, and I, I think this question of parentage, children will always want to know who their parents are. And if you say, Either we don't know, or your parent was a machine, or your your parent was some woman in India who we rented a womb for two thousand uh, dollars. This will not not go well psychologically for people.
0: Uh, so here's a question I have for you: Which, mm. in your view, is better, having a, a surrogate mother who is a human being, so it's a natural process, but involves the exploitation of this woman who is put up to being a surrogate by economic circumstance and who then has the child taken away uh, or the an artificial womb supposing such technology were possible that would remove that exploitative step
1: i i think they're both equally awful to be honest i mean equally awful um equally well i mean for the child in in any case i think the you know the absence of a parent in in either case is, i mean will be differently felt but i think. Uh, It would be hard to say, like to weigh up. On the surrogate
0: case, your mother is someone that we exploited and took advantage of and (laughs) pushed into this situation. You know, Uh, I think that's worse than than we weren't able to conceive. But through this technology, I mean, if you eliminate the kind of predisposition to not liking technology. Mm. Uh, And I think if you were the product of an artificial womb, you couldn't have that kind of dislike for technology and your Whoever your, your other parent was, they certainly wouldn't have that dislike for technology. So I doubt that the kid of, a, of an artificial womb would have the attitude to artificial wombs, which critics of artificial wombs tend to.
1: Well, uh, they might not up until the point in which they read Ted Kaczynski's manifesto, in which case they might go <laughs> ballistic and uh, sue you. Or, but they or... couldn't
0: exist without it. No, so, I, yeah. I understand.
1: But there are children who sued their parents for being brought into the world. You know, it, it, it is a possibility. Um,
0: well, but that would be a critique that could be applied regardless of how they came into being. I mean, if you want to say <laughs> yeah, parents shouldn't true. be, yeah, you know, the antinatalist argument can be made at ordinary nuclear families. Uh,
1: yeah, for sure. And, and I don't think I mean, I think the cases have been quite precise about the kind of, you know, terrible circumstances of, of people's birth. Um, but, I, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I take your point that, that, that an artificial womb would be at least eliminate the exploitation of, of the, the hypothetical surrogate. Um, but at the same time, I mean, that kind of disconnection, you know, every single human being that exists today was conceived in the same way, right? We haven't, you know, IVF and, and, and so on hasn't yet broken the reality that every single human being is conceived of you know, through the fusion of a sperm and an egg and everyone has been carried in the womb of a woman. I mean, this is, this is true of everyone, right? There's literally no one who's not been born. You know, you you can keep people alive for longer if they're born prematurely, but they still at some point were carried for a long period of time. They were still gestated naturally. So we haven't crossed that line yet as a species. Um <laughs> I don't think we should. I I think like I say, the forms of psychological horror that would attend upon the idea of being born partly of a machine would I don't know, cross so many ethical lines. <laughs> I can't what, even What would
0: those lines be? What would the lines be in particular? Because I think the people who support artificial wombs uh, think that it's a kind of disgust reaction from conservatives rather than there being specific lines that you could philosophically identify.
1: Well, I, I think the absence of a, of a mother, the absence of a real human being as one of your parents would be um, psychoanalytically unbearable. Like no, there is no even if even if somebody's mother dies in childbirth and they survive, they had a mother, right? They were who was a real human being with a real history, who carried you in her body, right? And let's say an artificial womb. I don't know how. It would work. What would you do? You'd <laughs> you'd use let's say the real sperm of of a male parent, and I don't know how. What would you, where would you get the egg from? I mean, the egg would still belong to somebody. You can't make human eggs some other way.
0: Well, <laughs> I, yeah, I suppose if the egg came from a surrogate, even if the uh, artificial womb was artificial, if the egg comes from a surrogate, then there's someone whose egg was stolen right. or taken under duress or taken through an exploitative process. But let's suppose <laughs> that, you know, that you just, they just gene engineer a, an egg.
1: Because I, I, I that's probably
0: what they'd like to do. They'd like sure. to just gene engineer an egg. And, and so the egg doesn't belong to anybody. It's been made in a lab.
1: Um, well, I, I mean, you know, I admit, I admit there is a disgust response part of this. But I, but I honestly think we are, we are literary enough and imaginative enough to imagine being, let's say, the child, the unusual or one of the first children of uh, a motherless conception. You know, what would it be like to be a motherless child? Uh, I think it would be extraordinary. I mean, it would be very hard to conceive of, if you excuse my language. (laughs) Hmm.
0: I think that's the issue with that argument is that it's an argument that requires already having the intuition that motivates the argument. I don't think it would get that intuition into somebody who doesn't have it, and the people who don't have that intuition are the people for whom an artificial womb sounds like a good idea.
1: But, but the, these people are not thinking it through. <laughs> um, I mean, I would recommend that that those these people read uh, "Never Let Me Go," I and mean, which is a book about cloning, which you maybe have read, Benjamin. If you read this novel, that it the Ishiguro novel. It's it's a very interesting novel. It's 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 sort of on the premise that. Cloning is possible. So basically, human beings have been cloned in order to uh, potentially provide organs for wanted children. So you have a kind of another set of children, if you like. And uh, at some point, people decided it would be a good idea to educate the clones to some degree. So the clones become kind of self-aware and they have a kind of schooling and they they know what they are. They, They become aware of their own role in this society. And it, it's a kind of, uh, you know, it's a very heartbreaking book. You
0: no, know. But in that case, the clones are very clearly the objects of an exploitative process, bred only so that they can have their organs pilfered for the benefit of others. So what we react to morally there is the fact of exploitation. Whereas for the artificial womb advocate, their aim is to remove the exploitation that would otherwise exist with a human surrogate.
1: I don't think their aim so is your, to your remove exploitation. Has to be I, I I think the people who are pushing for artificial wombs are actually people who want to remove the role and function of motherhood. I think this is a deeply misogynistic project. I I you know, when I hear about this these ideas, whether they're from a transhumanist or a transgenderist perspective, the idea, oh, we can get men to carry children, we can, you know, do womb transplants. I mean, you're never, ever gonna be able to do it. But anyway, it's just, you know, it's a kind of horrific fantasy of like having this role and taking it away from women, I think.
0: You don't think it's just people who are having fertility problems who are unable or unwilling to give up on the dream of having children and are looking for a way to do it that doesn't involve exploiting some poor person?
1: I mean, you know, I'm sure there are some people for whom that's true. But you know, there are there are obviously children in need of fostering and adoption. I, I think this kind of fetish for having your own child, even when you seriously can't, like, I think there is this kind of Again, like a, a culture that understood tragedy and understood loss and understood that not everything was everybody would be able to deal with that. I, I think there is a kind of consumerism at the heart of things like surrogacy, which sees children as something like an accessory, you know, something, oh, I want this, therefore I should have it. It's like, no, you you know, not everybody... I, I think
0: probably your most powerful argument is that there are... People maybe don't have the right to have children. No, they don't. That if you aren't able to have children, then maybe that means that you shouldn't or can't. I think that, yeah. but that uh, doesn't you mean could argue you... that the whole surrogacy project is a little bit narcissistic insofar as it's kind of an insistence on having children, even when you're being told effectively by nature that you can. I think that argument yeah. would have some purchase for some people. But generally, the people who are willing to entertain the artificial womb aren't persuaded that nature can tell them what they can and can't do in that kind of well,
1: way. Well, it's not up to them. It's up to nature, isn't it? <laughs> nature <laughs> will have the last words, you know, I think.
0: Well, but then if they do succeed in building the surrogacy, you know, the uh, the artificial womb, then they will have proven that it is possible in nature to do <laughs> such a thing.
1: I, I Well, we shall see, <laughs> won't we? But I I strongly suspect this, this is not viable. I think these fantasies are yeah, like I think they are narcissistic. I think there's Promethean delusions of grandeur that human beings fall into the trap of pursuing permanently. It's, it seems to be part of our nature, if you like, to to always imagine things and to try to aim for things that are actually like a really terrible idea and in fact often really counterproductive and destructive. I think that's sort of the kind of creature we are uh, but I think we also have the capacity to limit those Promethean fantasies.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, you know, part of the the difficulty here is that some number of those Promethean fantasies do work out at least for a time. You know, we have fire, and we we did figure out how to control yeah, it. Yeah, and, and
1: then we forgot and about and it. We for, burned for, coal with it for years. People <laughs> forgot how to make fire. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> No, sure, oh. but, but fire fire is also a natural, you know, fire is an element. Fire is, you know, it's, it's not an artificial womb. Fire is not an artificial womb.
0: <laughs> but human control of fire, you know, that, that comes, I think, from the same impulse to think that you can impose your will on something which, if you imagine before human beings controlled fire, fire would have been something that was, you know, seemed obviously not something that human beings can or should control. It's dangerous, it burns people. You know, someone who has control over fire would be a sorcerer, would be someone who was engaged in some kind of unnatural magic mm-hmm. you know, to to people before. I imagine that's how it would have would have seemed. I remember- I imagine there was some set of people who felt that way, but they never wrote anything down.
1: Yeah. I mean I remember going to um to outside of Rome, uh to Ostia Antica, which is, you know, Ostia is Uh, Well, it's actually where Pasolini was was murdered. But Ostia Antica is a Roman uh, town, which is relatively preserved, I mean, in in ruins. But um, one of the very beautiful, interesting things about it is the role, the central and celebrated role of the fire, the people who guard the fire. So basically, so the Romans are using these oil lamps, which... Are quite dangerous, right? And lots of people are sort of falling asleep, and you know things are catching on fire. So in the centre of the town, they have the kind of fire department, and every night they would go round and check that everybody's lamp was not sort of burning them to death. And they they really had this very central role in the in the town. And I thought how how wonderful, and they had this sort of beautiful mural to the fire people, and you know this was like a great a great role. And uh, so I can. You can see the sort of respect for the fire in these older communities, you know, where it is.
0: Yes, but, you know, isn't this unnatural that you would have a whole set of people <laughs> devoted to, you know, making sure that this unnatural element that human beings really should not be trying to wield, you know, out of their pride and hubris, you know, doesn't kill everybody. Uh, and in these cities, you know, that all the houses, they're built of flammable materials and, and so easily if a fire starts, it can burn down the whole neighborhood. And isn't this really the comeuppance that they deserve for usurping the role of the gods and directing when oh, fires start? And where they start? Well,
1: possibly, possibly. <laughs> Aren't I, uh, they
0: playing God by trying to command the fire in such uh, a way?
1: What, what do the Amish think about fire? Do they do they use fire? I think, they're, they I think
0: they're fine with it. Yeah, but yeah, you know, the story of Prometheus is yeah. I think about this. It's yeah. about the fact that that the seizing of control of fire is seizing something that belongs to the gods.
1: Yeah, but then uh, I think and the Romans- man is stolen. But I think, you know, with the ancestor worship in the hearth, there is a sense of which the fire is sacred, you know, for the ancients. The fire is understood to be this very dangerous, very spiritual entity, and they, they treat it with reverence and respect.
0: Yeah. And what if people started to do that with artificial oh, wombs? What if they started pitching artificial <laughs> wombs as this sacred thing that had been stolen from the gods? That, well, uh, and really, you're you're a divine child. If you come from the artificial womb, you were born through a miracle with the aid of the gods. And you could you could make this work culturally. You could talk your way into it.
1: I mean, Benjamin, what you're describing is much more likely to happen than what I'm describing, which is like, can we please stop doing these awful, monstrous things? Uh,
0: you right, know. It's in our nature to strive for things that strike us as awful and monstrous, and then to rationalize them as, as not just normal, but sacred and wonderful.
1: Yeah. Oh. You're making me feel incredibly misanthropic.
0: <laughs> yes. but if we're really talking about what is natural, natural is is to
1: well, I agree with you. I, 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 you. know, I'm the one saying also that it's in our nature to be Promethean. You know, I agree with you. I I think it's you know we have a we. You know, at the very least, we're, we're split, we're, we're you know, we're, we're double-edged in this way. I, I agree that, you know, inside of us are two wolves, one of which is Prometheus, the other which is Ned Ludd,
0: you know. And, and we can't say that one is the good one and one is the bad one. They're they pull together, ideally, you know, like the, the horses.
1: But we can say, the, I, know, I think sure that a child right. deliberately deprived of a mother is somehow missing out on something. Profound.
0: Ah, uh, but but their mother is is the divine mother. Their mother is Hera. <laughs> oh
1: God! <laughs> well, you I mean, can imagine it, is, it. it is true if you think about the Greek myths, like Athena, yeah. and, and how many of them are not born in a in a normal way. I mean, you know, Athena springs from the the brain of Zeus, right? Right. You know, so she's so. I mean, she if, has no mother. Yeah. So so in a way, I mean, you already do have this prefigured. Um, mythically, in the yeah, Greeks.
0: I, I bet the first the first girl born of an artificial womb will be named Athena.
1: You should write scripts for terrible Hollywood science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be great, you know, like sort of I don't know, ex womina or something. You could write these sort of awful, <laughs> god awful, bioethical sci-fi dramas. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I I have a more you know relatively agnostic position on this. I see arguments on on both sides of it, um, but yeah, I, I I see your your point that it involves a kind of uh, unwillingness on the part of someone to let go, and right. I think that that's always uh, psychologically it's not great to be in a position where you would want something so badly that even though it's very difficult for you to get it, you push on for it to the point where you have to invent whole new machines that we don't presently have to try to obtain the thing.
1: Right. I think
0: that that is a a little bit of a psychological issue when somebody becomes so transfixed upon a particular lost object that they go to the trouble of inventing something new to get that thing. At the same time, Inventing new machines to get stuff that we want is a very human thing to do. No, I agree.
1: But I I suppose all I would say is like, you know, there should also be a kind of literary dimension to this, which would be to try to imagine what it would be like to be the child of this project. You know, that's the thing. I
0: I think I think the child would have a God complex. I think that's what especially (laughs) the first one, you know, when there aren't a lot of them. Can you imagine?
1: I mean. You know, so so I suppose it's like alongside the science, and you know, it's also we need the myth and the tragedy and the poetry to to think about what what that would actually be like existentially and psychologically. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just I don't know, use both both sides of our of our brains, you know, somehow. <laughs> okay, we are at an hour exactly.
0: All right, so we'll wrap up. Thank you guys so much for listening. We're going to go and do the B-side, uh, where we're going to talk about uh, <laughs> opening things. And My girlfriend, she broke her wrist, and I've been opening things, and we're going to talk about that. So uh, do join us over there on Patreon if you'd like, uh, but otherwise have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye
1: Bye-bye. <laughs>